Our first reading this morning is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, verses 19 to 23, and that can be found on page 91 of the Church Bible. Leviticus 15. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. Our second reading is from the book of Mark, commencing at chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and that can be found on page 816. Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if I touch his clothes I will be healed immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him he turned around in the crowd and asked who touched my clothes you see the people crowding against you his disciples answered and yet you can ask Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, 
which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, thank you, Michelle. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have brought us here today for your own purposes that are known only to you. Will you minister to each of us right now through your word and by your spirit that we might come to know Jesus more and more and so follow him as we ought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure if you're aware But we live in a time in history and in a place in the world where we are largely inoculated from desperate circumstances. Have you ever considered that? We are so wealthy, we are so well educated, we have such access to amazing health and medical and psychological services that it is very possible for a child in our city to grow to the age of 18 and really be untouched by death and suffering. That's remarkable. We have not seen war. We rarely see poverty. Displaced others are not on our doorstep, only on our TVs and only occasionally. This is not the world into which the Gospels were originally written. Did you know that in the first century, one third of all children died before the age of one? One in three children died. That would affect almost every single family. So you would carry the pain as a family of bringing a child into the world and knowing that it would not see the age of one. Now, some of you know that pain. Some of you here. You'll know that changes you. In the first century, many of your children would grow up knowing the pain of losing a sibling. That would change them. But, you know, it wasn't just back then that people knew desperate circumstances better than us. It happens today as well, just not so much here. Uh, As many of you know, I go to teach theology in Africa, and I'm going again in a few months. Whenever I go, I'm always reminded of how privileged we are. I remember two years ago, a pastor in Malawi asking me for $10 so his five-year-old daughter could afford glasses so she could see. Can you imagine not being able to afford $10 for your five-year-old girl? I remember pastors in Zimbabwe telling me that they would only eat every three days or so for that was all they could afford. Can you actually imagine eating only one major meal every 72 hours? I mean, think about that. Now, I know that some of us have experienced real and present and recent desperate circumstances. Some of us have, but most of us have not. As I said at the beginning, we live in a time in history and in a place in the world where we are largely inoculated from desperate circumstances. In Mark's Gospel today, we meet two people who are very unlike us. These two people are absolutely in desperate circumstances. We meet, firstly, a lady who has been religiously, sexually, 
relationally and socially dead for 12 years. That's the first person we meet. And then we meet a 12-year-old girl who is dead. Some weird similarities there, right? Well, absolutely, and these stories are significantly and deeply interwoven. Now, let's take a step back from the text for a moment because I need to explain one thing. To understand what's going on today, what we need to see is that Mark uses a technique in his gospel and in today's story that comes up again and again in his gospels. It's a technique that we sort of miss unless it's pointed out to us. And then once it's shown to us, we start to see it in a whole range of places. Now, please don't think this is going to be a bit of a dry New Testament lecture on how to read the gospels for all they're worth. Uh, It won't be that. But let me say this. If you don't understand what Mark's doing here, uh, there's so many parts of Mark's gospel you'll never get your head around properly. Okay? So we need to see what's going on. And the technique that Mark uses here has been given a particular name. The name is a sandwich. And in Mark's gospel, they're called Markin sandwiches. Now, doesn't that just sound like I've made that up? Well, I didn't. So here's a PhD on it that you can read in your own time. Let me tell you how they work. Here's how they work. What you have is a story that is then interrupted by a seemingly unrelated story. And then after that, you then jump back to the original story. And here's the key. Here's the key to every Mark and Sandwich. The meat interprets the bread. The ham helps you understand the multigrain. Okay, the middle story is always key to understanding what's going on in the outer story. Now, everyone agrees, every scholar agrees there's five sandwiches in Mark. Plenty say there are nine. Some say there are 11. Today, we stumble upon the first. And it is about a dying little girl. So a Jewish synagogue leader, an important religious man named Jairus, please have your Bibles open. Uh, Make sure you can see I'm not making it up. An important religious man named Jairus comes to Jesus because he is in desperate circumstances. He falls at Jesus' feet and then in verse 23 he cries with only the heartbreak that a father can. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. You can feel the pain in his voice. Now in the days before penicillin and CAT scans and stethoscopes, a gravely sick child was a very serious matter. And time was of the essence. So Jairus goes to see the healer. So we see that Jesus starts on his way to Jairus' house to see Jairus' daughter. And this large crowd mills around Jesus. He's the teacher of the moment. He's the flavor of the month. He's the one with the magic touch, or so they all thought. And then in verse 25, we jump out of story one and into story two. We get to our next story, which seems unrelated, but will soon become key. It's the meat in our sandwich. We read in verse 25. See that? A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, let me just say a few things about this woman. This is not a woman who is struggling a little. No, this woman is a picture of the walking dead. This woman is dead in every way except physically. Religiously, she is unclean. She cannot go to the temple. She cannot meet with her God. Sexually, she is untouchable. Her husband cannot sleep with her while she was bleeding. In fact, probably, they would probably have been divorced by now. Relationally, she's dead for she can bear no children. She cannot raise a family. And socially, she is dead for she would be an outcast from her community. No one would go near her. 
That's who this woman is. She approaches Jesus and all she wants to do is touch him. Now, let's be clear, there's probably an element of superstition in her desire here. Verse 29 tells us what happened. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. What happens? She's healed. And all she wants to do is, to, is now she's touched Jesus anonymously, is slip away. All she wants to do is slip away. Please, God, help me get away from here unseen. Why would she have thought that? Because she has just broken the law. She is unclean and she has come and touched a religious teacher, a rabbi. All she wants to do is get away unseen. But Jesus will have none of it. Look at verse 30. At once Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? The disciples, bright fellas that they are, verse 31, Jesus, there's hundreds of people, everyone's touched you. What are you talking about? Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. That's an amazing story. And Jesus won't let this woman just walk away. And there's two reasons for this, at least two reasons. The first is this. If Jesus were just to let this woman walk away at this point here, she would misunderstand the gospel. Do do you see that? If she just walked away, he touched him, was healed and disappeared, she'd misunderstand Jesus. She'd walk away thinking, look, if you just touch this man, you're healed. And she'd become entrenched in her superstition. She thinks right now that touching Jesus' clothes has saved her. And Jesus will have none of it. He loves her so much, he will not let her remain entrenched in her superstition. So he says to her, no, 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 daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And what we learn is that she has not been saved by the fabric, but by faith. This woman has been healed. She's been saved. It's the same word in the Greek. Because she has come to Jesus in desperate trust. Now, Now, here's the thing. Think about this. Did this woman have perfect faith in Jesus when she approached? You've got to be kidding Now, her faith was tinged, perhaps overrun, with superstition. And yet we see Jesus, don't we, respond in grace and life to those who turn to him. Even those with broken faith, even those with weak faith, even this woman with wrong faith. And this story reminds me of another story, you'll probably know it, from Mark 9, about a man with broken faith. It's a father this time who comes to Jesus also desperate. His son Uh, is demon-possessed, and the demons make his son try to kill himself. So the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds by saying, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. What does the father say? He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Another man in desperate circumstances, Jesus says, I can do anything for those who trust in me. And the man then in one sentence describes my faith and I'm sure your faith. In fact, everyone who has faith in Jesus, he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, isn't our relationship with God one that is built in faith in his son? But if you're like me, isn't that a faith that is always weak and fickle and fractured? We do believe. And yet, aren't we racked with unbelief? Here's the thing. 
God does not expect perfect faith. Just desperate faith. Just a trust in him from people who know they have nowhere else to turn. But there's a second reason why Jesus won't let this woman get away so easily. It's the second reason, and it's because he is teaching her and us something new about who he is and about the law. Now, I said before that the woman has broken the law. She has. This is Leviticus 15. Uh, Stay with me, men. Uh, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she'll be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe in water, and he'll be unclean until evening. Now, 12 long years, this woman has lived like this, fatigued with grief, fatigued by illness, fatigued by the knowledge that anyone she touches, she defiles. And now Jesus wants to teach her and us something. I hope you notice in that Leviticus reading that there is always a direction that defilement moves, always in one direction, from the unclean to the clean. Did you notice that? So in the Old Testament, the leper, the infected, the menstrual, the unclean, they had to be removed and isolated and separated. Why? Because defilement always moved in one direction, from the defiled, from the unclean, to the pure, the clean. But did you notice with Jesus the exact opposite? For the first time in history, the movement swings the other way. The tide turns. For the first time in history, instead of an unclean person defiling another, we see a perfect person purifying the unclean. That's what we're being shown. Jesus shows this woman and he shows us that he is the one who can make the unclean clean. He can make the unclean clean. More than that. Jesus takes a woman who is dead in every sense and brings life to her in every sense. And all of a sudden, we're out of the story again. Remember, there's a sandwich going on. This is weird, right? Because we're moving from the meaning uh, to the structure. That's exactly what Mark wants us to see. Okay? We're now out of the story. We're now back to Jairus. We're back to the bread. But keep in mind that this story about the bleeding woman is going to become crucial in our understanding of what is happening with Jairus. So in verse 35, can you have a look at this? We see that this interlude Jesus has had with this woman, this life-giving touch Jesus has given to this woman, has resulted in the death of another. The death of a very small little girl. And her father had been with Jesus this whole time, willing him to come back to his house, and then he gets the news, mate, it's all over, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. Now, it's interesting. Don't lose sight of one little side point here. Did you see this? The upright, the religious, the moral, the pure Jewish male leader is kept waiting while Jesus has dealt with his unnamed, unclean, non-temple attending, nobody woman. Did you notice that? And then the leader's child has died. It's interesting, isn't it? The privilege and the power of the leaders of the kingdom of the world does not continue into the kingdom of God. Well, you can imagine that this father's heart is crushed. The finality of death all of a sudden becomes deeply personal for him. He's a man in desperate circumstances who has now come to the end of the line. 
So his less than sensitive servants say to him, stop bothering the teacher, which is accurate, just not very kind. But Jesus is kind. Jesus is the king of desperate circumstances. Verse 36, have a look at that. We see Jesus hears what the servants have said to Jairus. So Jairus turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. And here we see something very important. It is the difference between fear and faith. You know, I was speaking with a very wise Christian mother recently whose children are now all grown up. And she was telling me that a number of people at her work where she works now, other parents who have grown up children, often say to her, what was it you did when you raised your kids? What did you do in the way you raised them that has meant that now as adults and young adults and teenagers, your children are so secure, so established, so unshakable? Because mine aren't like that. What did you do? To which she replies, I didn't do anything. Everything you see in them that you wish your kids have but don't doesn't come from me. It has come from God. Then she explained to me how that worked. And she explained to me what life was like for their family when her kids were small. She told me the story of Mike, her littlest boy, who when he was 12, she would put him on a train to catch into the city to go to high school by himself. And she remembers him turning to him, this little 12-year-old boy, and saying, Mummy, I'm scared. To which she replied, Mike, there is nothing I can do for you. I will not be there. I cannot help. But Jesus can. You trust him. You pray to him. You know that he will be with you every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day. She said to me that was what she taught her kids from the youngest age, that there was a rock, a stability, a God who had her children and held them and loved them and cared for them more than she ever could or would. And she said it is that that has given her children as teenagers and adults a security that no one can have, actually apart from trusting in Jesus. See, what she actually did with that 12-year-old little Mike was replace his fear with faith. The very thing Jesus does with Jairus and the bleeding woman. They're actually opposites, fear and faith. And Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. He says, don't fear, have faith. And he says it to us. When we are fearful about life and work and singleness and marriage and family and housing and kids and, 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 don't be afraid. Just believe. Well, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house. The mourners are there. The little girl's death is being grieved. And then Jesus takes charge. The little girl is not dead, she's asleep. And they laugh at him. (laughs) These people know death. They don't get death wrong. And then Jesus walks into this little girl's room, he takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kum, which as our Bibles tell us means, little girl, I say to you, get up, which is accurate but wooden as a translation. It gives us the meaning of what Jesus says without the feeling of what Jesus says. What Jesus actually says to this girl is this. He says, honey, it's time to get up. 
Do you see the difference? Jesus rouses this little girl from death the way a parent rouses their child from sleep. I hope you see the point. Death to Jesus is like sleep to us. This man, this Messiah, this God holds even the power of death in his hands. And Jairus is given back his daughter. Now, I said that the meat interprets the bread, right? I said that the story of the bleeding woman helps us understand the story of Jairus. Well, here's how it works. Story one. We meet Jairus who thinks he has a sick daughter. Okay? So he goes to Jesus in faith, in hope, in trust. Story two. We meet a woman who thinks she's sick, but she's not. Mark wants us to know that she's actually not sick. She's dead. Not physically, but in every other way. So Jesus meets a woman who appears sick, but is actually dead, and then restores life to her death. He reanimates her. Story three, Jairus' hope has turned to dust as his sick girl dies. So his servants say, don't bother the teacher, it's all over. But what does story two show us? Story two has shown us that sickness, which is actually death, is not beyond the power of Jesus. And that informs us for story three, because in story three, sickness becomes actual death, but we know from story two that it is not beyond Jesus. So Jairus is told, don't be afraid, just believe. And of course, Jesus awakes the little girl. Mark's clever, isn't it? And that's what these two stories together mean. Friends, I started today's sermon by saying that we live in a time in history and a place in the world where we are largely inoculated from desperate circumstances. And that is absolutely true, but not entirely true. Because largely inoculated does not mean entirely inoculated. The fact is we don't escape desperate circumstances here in the affluent West. We simply mask, ignore or postpone them. I mean, no one in the room is so arrogant as to think that death doesn't crouch at your door, are you? No one here is so arrogant to actually believe that money will make you secure, are you? None of us are arrogant enough to think that education will be our saviour and our children's saviour, are you? No, not if we're wise. If we're wise, we'll know that all of those things that can be great gifts can also become great distractions to the reality of this world. And in the same way that putting perfume on a corpse does not change the reality of a situation, neither does long life or money or education. We can run but not hide. We can ignore but not escape. We can distract. But the fact is that desperate circumstances are the lot of every person who lives in this broken world. Most of us are just able to put that off for a little while longer than most. And the words of Jairus, sorry, the words of Jesus to Jairus and the words of Jesus to the bleeding woman are the words that we all need to hear as well. They are these words. They are the words of, do not be afraid. Just believe. You know, both of these stories here raise the question, why? Why did this woman have to live for 12 years with this awful, debilitating, death-like disease? Why did this little girl and her family need to go through the grief of death? And the answer is, we have no idea. See, the thing with desperate circumstances that will befall us all is that they are almost always shrouded in mystery. 
And we long for answers to those questions more than anything. And almost always what we actually get is silence. Let me finish today with the words of a guy called Paul David Tripp from his book called New Morning Mercies, a book that I'm reading in my devotions at the moment. The best theology will not remove mystery from your life. So rest is found in trusting the one who rules, is all, and knows no mystery. God is with you in your moments of darkness because he will never leave you. But your darkness isn't dark to him. Your mysteries aren't mysterious to him. Your surprises don't surprise him. He understands all the things that confuse you the most. Not only are your mysteries not mysterious to him, but he is in complete charge of all that is mysterious to you and me. Remember today that there is one who looks at what you see as dark and sees light. And as you remember that, remember too that he is the ultimate definition of everything that is wise, good, true, loving and faithful. He holds both you and your mysteries in his gracious hands. And because he does, you can find rest even when the darkness of mystery has entered your door. Don't be afraid. Just believe.